This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Those of you tuned to this radio program in the hopes of hearing commentary about Kevin McCarthy and the future of the House of Representatives, I will have something on that a bit later. I want to try and think of something nobody else has said and then say it, whether it happens to be true or not. But for uh, those of you that need a break from wall-to-wall McCarthyism... You are in luck because we have, coming your way in a moment, the most interesting hour in all of radio anywhere in the galaxy because we actually probe what's going on with your probes and in this galaxy. Also, a special programming note to all of our listeners listening on uh, WCBM in Baltimore. I absolutely never talk about mass shootings for a variety of reasons that I've gone into before, but I am monitoring this situation involving this shooting near Morgan State University because uh, it seems to be at least a possibility that the shooter may still be at large. Details are unfolding, and four people have been wounded in this shooting near Morgan State University. Just know, if you're listening in Baltimore right now, if there's any update on this story anytime in the next four hours we're going to bring it to your attention any any news any arrests any uh any more information at all we're going to bring it to you no matter what now there this just happened to be a very very busy two weeks when it comes to space and the sky and looking up and we have a guy that is not only has his eye on the sky he is dr sky very pleased to be joined once again for our bi-weekly visit with steve steve cates aka dr sky veteran radio and tv broadcaster also an edutainer and he is someone that knows space and astronomy as well as anybody also a terrific podcaster with the dr sky experience steve it's great to talk to you well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and the listeners as we go uh, way beyond the stratosphere and talk about things that I think people would be most fascinated uh, with and are. We appreciate the time. Well, um, a lot to get into. Uh, let's look at the moon. And the moon this week has been particularly interesting to look at. It's been one of those moons where for the last three days, it's almost distracting as I'm driving into work because I can't help but looking up and staring at it. We're not the only country that has issues with the moon or would like to explore the moon. India has a moon lander. What is going on with this Indian moon lander and rover? Well, the Chandrayaan-3 was their great successful landing on the surface of the moon, close to, and I think many in the media may have you know, not gotten this right, but we always give you the accuracy here. They were cl- claiming that it landed at the lunar south pole. Well, if you're looking at minus 69 degrees south latitude, that's not quite 90 
So in other words, if you were trying to cheat somebody out of money by you know giving them <laughs> the difference of that and not giving it back to them, I think that would be certainly ridiculous. But when it comes down to this lander, this is very interesting. India, the nation obviously, has put a lot of effort, and they also have another spacecraft, not to change subject totally, that's heading toward the sun. And this is interesting also. So they're doing yeoman job, a yeoman job, and you know, exploring the universe. So they landed on the moon with this lander, and out of it comes this little tiny rover. But this is all solar powered. So they know very carefully that you know when this particular unit needed to be shut down, it landed. The main lander did a little jump and, you know, fired its rocket and moved closer to the little rover. Great technology. But unfortunately, as we find out on the surface of the moon, Frank, this is interesting. A lunar day is comprised of 14 Earth days total. So just as we take for granted, we see the sunrise in the east generally, you know, move across the sky toward noon high and then set generally in the west. But on the lunar surface, if you were there, Prepare for that sun to glide through the lunar sky in 14 days. So what happened very quickly? The little rover and the little bit, you know, spacecraft, they shut it down just to preserve their batteries. They tried once again when sunset arrived. And remember, the temperature here is so incredible. We're looking at maybe minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit and probably more. So they tried to fire up the little rover and the spacecraft, and unfortunately, it didn't work. But they already knew this. They knew that the main mission of Chandrayaan-3 was to land there in a very difficult landing area on the moon. Look at how rocky it is, how crater, you know, strewn that part of the southern pole area of the moon is. So uh, great congratulations to them on the mission that no other nation has done in that particular rocky area of the south pole of the moon. And like the Chinese, who did something even more incredible, they landed a lander and a rover on the far side of the moon, an even more complicated analogy. Wow. Um, speaking of the moon, Noam Layden was here yesterday and he brought uh, to our attention a very interesting story, which is that in the relatively near future, there is an effort to actually use 3D printing to start building homes on the moon. I mean, a process that could begin, they're sure. saying, in the next 10 years or so. I mean, mm-hmm. for a place that we haven't been to in 50 years, this seems awfully ambitious to begin in the next 20 to 20 years. What's happening? Who's behind this? Well, it's interesting, Frank. I remember, the surface gravity on the moon is a sixth of that of the Earth. So what you would really want to make sure is more so than the structural integrity, because you could get by with less than building solid steel walls and things like that. But you do need to have the ability to protect that area from the radiation of the sun. So in any many areas, of course, that people are utilizing these type of printers, this, of course, is a very feasible you know, method of building new structures on the moon, because simply you could create a lot of this stuff by using small machines. And obviously, if you have this ability to you know, house, say, 10 or 15 astronauts at one time in the future, you would, of course, then have this ability to build it very quickly and probably with less expense than you would with traditional materials. Because remember, the problem is we have a problem with lifting objects into space. And there was a dollar amount for a, you know, a pound of lifting something to space. It was way up there. And I know at a time we could talk about $2,000 a pound, some people were estimating a long time ago. So this way, you could probably do it with a little less weight Because remember, you have to get all that stuff up to the surface of the moon and put it down onto the surface. So this way, bring the factory to the moon, start building these high-tech, you know, products, maybe made of carbon fiber in 3D printing, all exciting, all high technology. 
And hopefully this will happen uh, in a relatively short time once we figure out how to get back to the moon cost-effectively. You know, folks are already calling in to queue up, which is a reminder to me that I didn't even give the phone number yet. Let me do that. If people have questions (laughs) about anything that we're talking about, folks can call in at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to learn more about any of the issues that we're talking about, check out the Dr. Sky experience. You can find that at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or any podcast platform at all. Just search the Dr. Sky Experience, hit the subscribe button. There's a lot of great content, not only related to space, but everything that's interesting. Steve, uh, lastly on the moon front, I, being of Italian descent, have uh, quite a fondness for ravioli. And I don't think anybody has made them uh, nearly as good as uh, as my grandmother used to make them. How, However, I have never heard the term ravioli and moon in the same sentence, although I saw a bunch of headlines about the ravioli moon this week what is the ravioli moon well we're looking at a moon that has as we many you know many people describe out there different shapes on the surface of the moon but as you look into this you know beautiful moon some two hundred and thirty thousand miles away people might see shapes and symbology on the surface of the moon and it also occurs and it also describes the shape of the moon too because remember frank something really fascinating as you just alluded to before driving in here as you're looking at the, into the station driving in or whatever time people are driving out there, we just had this most incredible full supermoon, the harvest one. And it was so amazing. I mean, here in Arizona, we had you know, lots of people out there, not hundreds, but maybe 50 or 60 people as we do these kind of sidewalk and, you know, different group events to show them the sky. But what's so fascinating is when you look to the surface of the moon, just remember those dark regions that you see on the you know, near side of the moon, were all created billions of years ago as lava overflows. The Latins, the Greeks, and especially the Italians, like Galileo, his simple description of those was mare as a reference to seas. And many people in that particular time period in the 1600s thought very much that the moon was, you know, coated with some kind of gigantic oceans. So we know the mare, the shape of like what we see in the nighttime sky, the most amazing views here on the earth. And I suggest to people and listeners out there, Get a moon map and learn so many of these beautiful seas that you can see on the moon. The Sea of Tranquility, the Sea of of Crises, which, by the way, if you look at the moon when it's full at a 12 o'clock position, if you look about the 2 o'clock position as the moon is rising, you'll see this splotch that looks like this roundy, dark eye. That's Mari Christian, the Sea of Crises, as they call it. Why am I mentioning that? Particularly here when you look at the relative size. So the size of Arizona here is like 350 miles I think it's 375 miles. It's the exact replicant size of what Arizona would be as if you pushed it all the way to the moon. So all these different shapes and sizes of the moon, but let's not forget the most romantic. We can see the man or woman in the moon. We can see the rabbit. And for children, it's a wonderful way to get them to what? Absolutely. Science and be part of it. And for the rest of us, it just makes us hungry. 800-848-9222. Exactly. 800-848-9222. Steve, uh, one of the issues that we talk about pretty frequently, actually, is the possibility of an asteroid hitting the Earth and, you know, we or a comet or some other celestial object that would create a bad situation for the humans on this planet. 
it was reported that in maybe 100 years from now or so, we were going to see a possibility of, at the very least, a close call with a very large asteroid colliding with the Earth. They say Mm -hmm. that the asteroid samples that uh, have been brought back to Earth last week could be a way to help obviate the asteroid damage. Give us the story here. What are these asteroid samples that came back to Earth last week, and what does it mean for our future survival as a species? Well, again, Frank, a great technological feat by NASA and the engineers that build these high-tech spacecraft. Of course, this particular spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, which, by the way, is still out in space, It hovered over this little asteroid. Well, it really isn't that little. It's more than a mile or so across called Bennu. And this particular asteroid, they had a little difficulty when they opened up the little hopper, like you'd have a little dustpan and you'd sweep stuff into it. Some of the larger chunks got jammed in there and they didn't think they would close it, but success they had. So it started to head back to the Earth a couple of years ago. It reenters the Earth's atmosphere as a capsule blown away from OSIRIS-REx. Landing successfully, that's another amazing feat, in the northern deserts of Utah. Then it's immediately scooped up, sent to a laboratory, sent to the Johnson Space Center. They carefully open it up. And what they're looking for, Frank, is obviously to find out the chemical composition of what might be the makeup of these asteroids. They're all formed supposedly about four and a half billion years ago. They orbit, we all remember from basic science in class, that these objects called asteroids, the belt lies between Mars and Jupiter. But it's a lot thicker than people imagine. So we're trying to understand what's the chemical composition, the organic compounds that may lie in there. And three uh, museums around the nation are actually going to partake in getting samples of these. We're going to find out that, of course, the Smithsonian D.C. gets some, the Space Center Museum in Houston, Texas. And how about this? The University of Arizona's Gem and Mineral Museum, a great place I've been there, and many people should visit it. But here, just to tell you how popular these rocks from space are, remember, Apollo brought back about 842 pounds of lunar rocks. And if you do the math, some people may say, well, that's a heck of a lot of money to spend, you know, over billions of you know, dollars over a period of over 12 years to get these rocks. But here's something interesting. Right in New York City's Museum of Natural History, I had to look this up, some 42,000 people lined up in just that first day or so just to come in and see what this, you know, replica or this facsimile of what the moon is like. Wow. So it brings up a lot of interest for people. I don't think many people knew that. So no, I, I think what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm actually banned from the Museum of Natural History, so I uh, would have <laughs> I would have missed that. But uh, that is interesting. There's a ton of interest. I didn't mean to cut you off there. What was your uh, no, no, last no, that's comment? quite all right. 800-848-9222. We're going to get to all of your calls throughout the hour. Let me begin though with Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I have two questions, and, and uh, you know, Frank, question. Yeah, yeah, Steve. Uh, first would be, uh, like Mount St. Helens, uh, the magna that mm-hmm. comes out. Uh, yes. What is, how far down is that material that comes out of these volcanoes, and what does that tell about this planet? My second question would be about just people estimating force at times uh, mass. You know, uh, an example might be just a surfer on those North Shore Hawaii. Uh, I mean, how, they're estimating that these waves aren't going to break their neck. I mean, how do they do that? How do people, you know, uh, just estimate that in their heads and take a chance? And then 
when someone says you look young, mm-hmm. what does that mean mm-hmm. if someone's in middle age <laughs> and they say you look young? What, what does that mean? Well, Joe, I don't know. I have to look at myself in the mirror sometime, and maybe I'll give you a better answer as to whether or not I even think that way. But on your first series of questions, let's go to volcanoes. The magma plume in these volcanoes goes down, literally. You're probably even looking at maybe 100 miles deeper into the surface of the Earth. Now, that's not an exact number, so don't quote me. But you have what's called a technical term. It's called a pyroclastic flow. Now, that's hard enough to say twice, right, Frank? So inside these magma chambers in the, in the rocks and in there, we're seeing pumped-up material that's molten rock, obviously. Just look at the people who have property on the big island of Hawaii, and they obviously understand that, you know, gee, do I have to leave my house now? If you drive down the street, you see this bubbling lava that's thousands of degrees in temperature. But it's very interesting. They go deep, deep into the surface of the Earth. But you have to remember this, Joe. Deeper into the Earth, in the Earth's core itself, we have this big bubble of material that's probably the size of a small planet that's still molten and spinning. And I know this may take up most of our time to answer these questions, but I'll concentrate primarily on this one because it's really fascinating. We're finding out that something inside the Earth's core may not necessarily be just perfectly spherical. In other words, there may be a big blob of material that's somewhere stuck or pushed out in between the core and somewhere halfway up, which theoretically could be causing a slight wobble or maybe even, who knows, a more definitive wobble in the Earth. But all you have to know when you talk about the second part of your question is a simple formula. Force equals mass times acceleration. Astronomers and scientists for the longest time and physicists obviously use equations like this. To understand, and I'm always impressed, uh, Joe and Frank, about how can they even calculate what considered to be force between two objects in space? And that's so amazing because they're not there. So at least for now, Einstein's rules, you know, relativity, both special and general, seem to be working. But when you're looking to generate an answer to what's the numerical side of force, just remember, force equals mass times acceleration. And that gets into physics. And what do we do, Frank? We start tomorrow, I guess, uh, another time. We can hold class. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. I need some remedial physics. Thanks, Joe. Eight hundred. Well, I, I need a refresher myself. Hey, <laughs> listen, you have to always start off from the beginning. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight, as we do every two weeks. Is it bi-weekly? Is it bi-monthly? Technically, both are correct. We like to call it semi-monthly. This is the other side of midnight, the infinite edition straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply it's the other side of midnight with frank morano to check ignition and may god's love be with you Thank you. 
Major Tom, one of the great unsung heroes of the space exploration movement, talking all things space with the inimitable Dr. Sky on the infinite side of midnight, one of our favorite guests. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, Steve, that uh, that's happened recently. I've been talking to more and more listeners. They say, you know, I enjoy your show. I don't always stay up, but uh, I always catch it on the podcast. But on the days when I know Dr. Sky is coming on, those are the days that I always make sure that I stay up to listen live. So I'm appreciative of your efforts in uh, helping us not only attract new listeners, but hold on to our existing listeners. Well, Frank, that's an honor. And obviously you and I are a team and a great station. And here we go with more information about what's out there and so much to talk about in the short time here. But I just wanted to highlight, if I may, something of importance that's on the calendar. And as we move into October the 4th, we look 66 years ago, the beginning of what we considered to be the space program, not a manned space program. But we go back in our time capsule to the Sputnik 1, the Soviet Union launches this rocket. But the interesting thing is, many people claimed around the world that they saw the Sputnik in the sky. Well, I can say that they didn't. Now, who am I to say that? Well, upon further analysis, we find out that it was the booster rocket that they actually observed, because here's why. The little Sputnik spacecraft was only 23 inches across. It had three little antennas. And I think somewhere downtown in the lobby of the United Nations building, they happened to have either the replica, I don't think it's the real one, but it weighed 184 pounds, went around the world. But yes, they saw the booster rocket going overhead. So can you imagine at that time, Cold War at one of its highest peaks, people imagining that, hey, if they can put something over my house and my head, over my head at night, What could they drop onto us? So this whole fear of what could come, but that's not the part of the space program we like to talk about. But the interesting thing is it stayed up in space, that is the Sputnik, till January 4th of 1958, but it was originally known as Object D. Now here's something from the Soviet space program that's interesting. On my birthday, January 30th, 1956, I know a long time ago, the Soviet Union approved the project called Object D. So it took them that time to build this particular spacecraft only had one watt of power. And when it zoomed around the Earth, that is the Sputnik itself, it came to a low of about 134 miles down, or I should say above the, above the Earth, to a high of about 583 miles in a 65-degree orbit. So, Frank, that's incredible. 66 years ago. Now, think about this, folks. This is amazing, Frank. In 66 years, look at how far we've gone. But yet, some might say... Not far enough. And then if you go back to the Wilbur and Orville Wright story about flying, we've really done, I think, as humankind, you know, all over the world, people collectively of all nations, we've really moved to great technology. And uh, let's hope we continue on that path, right? 
It uh, certainly is interesting. You know, the space program has had a lot of ups. Obviously, everyone points to the Apollo mm-hmm. missions and the moon landings, but the incredible right. Apollo 13 r- return is uh, equally impressive. Yeah, they've had a lot of downs, obviously, the Columbia and Challenger disasters, but yes. you really put it in perspective there when you talk about what we've been able to achieve and now what the private sector is in part at sure. least able to achieve in a uh, relatively short amount of time. Hey, in addition to it being the 66th anniversary of the space program, a couple of uh, noteworthy things are happening on October 14th. That's the anniversary of a pretty significant event that occurred in 1947, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We talk about General Chuck Yeager, and I had the honor, maybe you have, and some other people out there in, in Radio Land, had the honor of being able to speak to Chuck Yeager. This old salt, as he liked to describe himself when he's flying, He was just incredible. He never had a degree from college, but here's the point. He wanted to be an astronaut, but at that particular time, they kind of barred him from that because they said, well, you know, we want the guys that have the college education. But here's what he did. This is interesting. We all know, or at least hopefully we know, October 14th, 1947, he flies out of that area in the western part of the United States, now Edwards Air Force Base. A B-29 bomber lifts him up in this little tiny X-1 rocket plane named in honor of his wife, Glennis, called Glamorous Glennis. He flies at Mach 1.06 at 43,000 feet, breaking the sound barrier. The people on the ground heard it. But, Frank, here's a story that most people don't know about him. And we, we talked about this when we, when we spoke with him a long time ago. He would hang out with a lady who owned a restaurant right there around Edwards Air Force Base. It's famous. It's in the right stuff. Her name was Poncho Barnes. And he hung out at Poncho's, and they would just get together, you know, all the guys drinking and She was there drinking, too, and they were having a great old time. So the night before he did his amazing supersonic flight, he goes over with Poncho and his wife, Glennis, and they had a nice time. They had dinner. They were drinking. I guess today the flight rules would prohibit it, but, well, that was back then. He gets on a horse. He's riding around that little uh, ranch, and guess what? He winds up falling off the horse, breaking two ribs. Wow, what does that mean? Next day? He tells one of the pilot engineers there, he says, you know what? I can't get into this rocket plane. Give me a stick so I can pull the door closed. He didn't tell anybody he broke his rib. <laughs> so isn't that incredible? You have Chuck Yeager doing this thing. Imagine how much pain. I've never broken ribs, and I don't know if you have, but anybody who's broken them, I understand that hurts. Yeah, I had so a bruised rib, uh, which was agony. I can't imagine a couple of broken ribs. <laughs> so here's Chuck Yeager. Doing this thing, imagine the feeling, breaking the sound barrier. And the, flower, the gentleman who was flying it was another good friend of ours. It was General Cardenas. He was the pilot there, or one of the pilots on the B-29. And what's General Cardenas famous for? If you look at the old sci-fi movies, you see the original flying wing. This is way before the B-2 stealth bomber, folks. This is when they had this fly, you know, triangular wing aircraft with propellers. And it's in a lot of those UFO sci-fi movies. You see pictures of it. And I even think it's in the War of the Worlds movie. But then they made a jet version of that. And he was one who flew that around the country. And he said, and I remember General Cardenas, I know we're going deep here. He said to me, you know, Dr. Sky, one time he goes when I was a pilot with that plane. He says, I got a phone call from Washington and President Truman wanted me to fly it back to D.C. And I said, well, why would he do that? He said, he wanted me to fly it up Pennsylvania Avenue. So he flies cross country. You know, it took him a couple of days to do it. And he flies this flying wing. And imagine seeing that in the 1940s. People think another, from another world. 
on the way home, he has some in- engine trouble near Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he's in this silver suit. So he lands on a farmer's property, and the farmer can't believe what he's seeing. He sees this thing that he can't imagine. It's not from Earth. It's from another world. And he sees this guy get out with a helmet on and a silver suit, and he pulls a shotgun on the guy. So the rest is history. Lots of amazing stories. But October 14th, we broke the sound barrier in 1947. There's another event happening on October 14th that I want to ask you about in a second, but I have been negligent in getting to the many people who have questions for you. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Robert, you're on with Dr. Sky. Good morning. Hi, Frank and Steve. Good morning, so, sir. Why, how do, why do astronomers use a parsec, and uh, how did that measurement of distance come about? Very interesting. The word parsec comes from, as you can, well, I should tell you how it works. If you take your finger and hold it out as far as your arm can go, and then hold it and look at the wall behind your finger, you blink your eye left and right, and you see that finger move a small amount. Bring it right next to your nose, and naturally that finger moves a much wider angle in front of your eyes. So astronomers have made this, it's kind of a measuring, uh, like we say, a foot or a meter. So in the universe, they measure out a parsec at 3.26 light years. And why is that important? Because at that measured distance, a star or an object would have a shift in a certain amount of seconds of arc. In other words, these tiny, tiny little seconds of arc shifts are very incredible when they're measuring distance. But now you think about it this way. When you talk about megaparsecs, how the heck are we supposed to use that same line of sight visual type thing? You can't. So you use spectroscopes to measure the shift of lines. So parsec, very simply, Robert, is a measure of distance at 3.26 light years away. And it's been used by astronomers for the longest of times because there's no star that we know of that's 3.26 light years away. And let's say it has a second of arc shift. The closest star that we know of empirically is Proxima Centauri of the you know, Alpha Centauri system at probably about 4. Point, eh, maybe about 4.20 light years or maybe a little less. But that's how they do that. Robert, thank <laughs> you. Thank you very much for the, uh, the call there. October 14th is a big day for those of us oh. that are interested in what's happening in 2023 as well, isn't it? Yes, Frank. We have a major eclipse of the sun here. And boy, today I had a very busy day. We're doing some interviews with the good folks at an amazing event that I'll be attending the International Balloon Festival in Albuquerque, which has never been there, but it's like a, an amazing gathering of people who love these lighter-than-aircraft, you know, lighter-than-air balloons. So here's what's happening. The reason we're going to Albuquerque is this eclipse on the 14th. Now, everybody across the listening area, if you're in the you know, contiguous United States, you should be able to see some of it. But I say, protect your eyes with the solar glasses. I'll mention that in just a minute. It starts off early morning along the coast of Oregon. The shadow of the moon travels very rapidly, four or 5,000 miles an hour across northern Nevada into central Utah, skirts to the four corners of Arizona. And lo and behold, right downtown Albuquerque, when they're having one of the last days of the balloon festival with 600 balloons, this is going to be an amazing event. And then it arcs down into Texas in an area, Frank, that will be the exact location that the April 8th eclipse will happen, which is the big total solar eclipse. So here we go. Solar glasses. Okay, we have a business. We have a company. People need to get solar glasses. But here it is in a light moment. 
If you go to this website, TSE17.com, meaning total solar eclipse 17, that was the total solar eclipse in 17, so TSE17.com, you'll see what's available, but these, and we guarantee it, are the true ISO certified glasses, because I made a mistake back in 2017, not to disparage any company, but I bought one from an online retailer, and I wanted those kind of good-looking, steampunk, cool-looking <laughs> things, you know, like motorcycle goggles. And guess what I got? I got what I deserved because I looked at the price, and they were only like five ninety-five. So I said, hopefully they're solar glasses. Well, here it is quickly. I get them, and smart me or you or anybody listening, I try them on, and I say, let me quickly look up. Well, Frank, they were just deep sunglasses of a green effect. So that's dangerous. So these are these things that we talk about. And the reason we're saying this Simply, people need to have this type of device. It's a very inexpensive thing, a couple of dollars. But the point is, that's what you need to see. But quickly on this eclipse, this is interesting. In the east coast of the United States, in the New York metro area, you'll be able to see this where 35% of the sun is covered by the moon. The time's exactitude are at 12.08 p.m. On October 14th, it starts. You'll see with solar glasses, don't stare at it without it you'll see the moon gliding from the top edge or the right edge of the moon, I mean, the right edge of the sun, excuse me. At 1.22 p.m. on the 14th, it'll be 35% covered. And then by 2.36 p.m., it will end. But what's interesting about this, the reason we're going there to Albuquerque or anybody in that tiny little area, 100 miles or so wide, we're going to see the full sun, even though it's too small to fit the sun, because it's considered what they call apogee. We're going to see a ring of fire, like we did the video last time with the Johnny Cash music. That was cool. But you look at this safely, and you'll see this amazing ring. It will get dark enough in the daytime for any location that's about 50 or 60% of the sun covered by the moon. But here's an easy way to do it, since we're very fair here when they're just trying to be salesmen here. If you simply do this, we do this with a lot of kids in children's programs, get a regular saltine cracker. And to make it fun, ask people before, how many holes does a real saltine cracker have? And I'll tell the audience because this they can do themselves. It's 13. Now, some of the other brands have 16, but why does that even matter? So what you do, let's say you have children, you take with your son to, your back to the sun, hold a little saltine cracker in your hand, and in front of that, put a small piece of paper. And each person can do this. And what you're going to see through those 13 holes when there's an eclipse going on, you know, mostly halfway or maximum, you're going to see 13 little crescents on there. If you stand under certain trees, we've seen this many, many times, the little pores in the, in the leaves on the trees will sp spread out these beautiful little eclipses on the ground. But the fun part about it with the kids is you can eat the cracker later or anybody, but just don't put peanut butter on it before because you'll ruin the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, October, just a couple, just a couple of weeks away. That's going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be fun for you, oh, but yeah. I think it'll be fun for everybody that that oh, uh, yeah. that will want to check out what's happening here. All right, a lot of people eager to chat with you. Doctor Sky is my guest for the hour. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. David is in Pennsylvania. Hello, David. Hello, Doctor Sky and Frank. Uh, L. Roker said today. Good morning. Uh, L. Roker yes. said last morning, Tuesday morning, that there were record highs predicted for the mid-Atlantic states Tuesday. New York is getting up into the 80s today. I just heard the weather forecast, and the temperatures yes. appear 
the temperatures apparently are rising uh, or have been high since the year 2000 with the Industrial Revolution. Do you think in a reasonable time, or is it possible at all, that we can put a platform large enough in space to collect solar energy, beam it down to Earth in a safe microwave, I understand the microwave would be a quarter of the Mm -hmm. intensity of the sun hitting the earth and Mm -hmm. supply energy uh, in that way. Uh, How many miles up would it have to be? How big would it have to be? Could the space station with Nations United work on it? And when do you think it, it could come into fruition? Then I'll hang well, up and listen. Great, okay. No, no, you believe me. Thank you, David, for calling. Very fascinating. I, mean, I wish we could spend hours on this. But the shortest answer I can give right now is it's not any time in our near future. Is it doable? Yes. Could we use the technology of beaming microwaves to the ground? Yes, our military and our space program has been testing this type of device with wireless direct energy where you could beam it down from space. But I think an even more simplistic thing might be, and somebody proposed this, you know, David and Frank, this is kind of interesting. Why not put a giant sun shield up in space where you could block out the light of the sun mm. for certain areas on the Earth? Now, people might say, well, why would you want to do that? I don't want darkness in the middle of the day. But the problematic thing, David, you asked some very good questions. It's doable, but financially, I don't think that's on anybody's you know, major, it's on a wish list, but it's not on anybody's next to happen thing. So the interesting part about that is there's also talk, now I'm shifting gears a little bit, David, There's also something out there which is even more phenomenal called the space elevator. Now, what the heck would that be? That would be this weighted object down where you build up into the sky and go out into space in which you could lift cargo. And this sounds crazy. Most people think, wait a minute, this is like total sci-fi, never worked. There's actually plans to develop a space elevator where you'd actually be able to, let's go for the simplistic discussion now, go from the ground to about 60 or 70 miles up into the sky and you could lift up product up there. But remember, it's going to stay rigid to the rotation of the Earth. So obviously, if anything is going to fly by it, that might be a problem too. I don't want to be on the 12,000th floor when some spacecraft is coming near me. But all these ideas are great. David, you bring up some good points. But simply to respond in finality, it's probably not for maybe another 100 or 200 years, in my opinion, to be able to develop that kind of technology. Maybe I'm a little too you know, conservative, but let's hope we could do something like that. Steve, uh, maybe this is an uh, improper question to ask because I don't know that anybody Mm -hmm. has an answer to it, but you know Mm -hmm. of my fondness for mysteries, particularly mysteries that seem to come from unexplained sources. So I have to ask you about this just because you're the best qualified person I can think to ask on this. Mysterious ground rings are appearing all over the world. And this is not uh, science fiction, this is a fact. Satellite images Mm -hmm. have revealed these strange bare patches of Earth encircled by vegetation in 263 different places across 15 countries. They're calling these fairy circles. What Mm -hmm. do we think this is? What do we know about this? What are these fairy circles? How long have they been around? I'm always honest. I really don't know. I mean, that's always a great way to always be frank and honest, but not to use your name again. No, here use it as much as you like. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, this is something fascinating. And doing a little research on this, 
scientists are looking at the possibility that we have some kind of unusual vegetation growing, but it even gets more simplistic than that. The entomology people, the insects studying around the world, saying that this might be some sign of a phenomenon that's due to termites in the ground. Now, I know that sounds bizarre, but I'm going to go to my simple premise at the beginning of when you ask the question. I don't know. And it's something that we really need to take a look at because the other side of the coin is this. Nobody has ever come up with a really good, really good solution to what crop circles are on the earth. Now, could that be some sort of a quasi-crop circle in a different type of modality, like in sand and in dirt, that does not necessarily have to have vegetation around it? But still, to end up on that, they say that there might be some connection to vegetation and insects or termites. Now, I know that sounds bizarre. But that's about as far as I can go with that one. 800-848-9222. Thomas is listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. Hi, guys. How you doing? Great. Good morning. Hey, uh, Thanks, Thomas. Uh, Dr. Scott, I was always fascinated by rainbows. Uh, what conditions, yes. after a heavy thunderstorm or a rain shower, causes a rainbow? Very good question. It's all what the subject called atmospheric optics, and I never really give homework out here. But if people will just Google the term atmospheric optics, you'll learn so much more about these phenomenal daytime sightings. So what's happening is moisture, little fine droplets of water, are strewn in the air, obviously, not necessarily just a heavy rain. So what we see is if the sun, using my eclipse analogy, where the sun is behind me and I'm holding the cracker and I see the sun on the, you know, the little image of the sun on the piece of paper, what you're seeing in the opposite general direction of where the sun is you're seeing what's happening is those rays of the sun are coming through, and because the water droplets refract light like little prisms, depending on the type of density of that water and or sometimes even ice, it creates this amazing arc of light in the sky. And what's even more amazing is, I don't know, I've seen a few, maybe you both have seen them too, is double rainbows, and the most beautiful ones are the ones that go from horizon to horizon. But you have to look at this also. There's other phenomena we could go on like for hours about atmospheric optics. We're also seeing some of these things which you see when the sun sets and there's large clouds in front of the setting sun. How many times have you seen these fingered rays of light? They're called crepuscular rays. And why is that so important? Because here in Arizona, if you look at our state flag, we have literally the arc of different rays of the sun coming out from a rising or setting sun, more likely rising. So rainbows, they're fascinating. Look up atmospheric optics. Maybe we should do a show on this, Frank, because there's so many strange phenomenon that people can see. And one more, if I may, just to take a moment on this, is if you look at the sky, in the sky, when you see the sun and around the sun, some 22 degrees on either side, you'll see these what look like fake suns. They look like two big prism things in the sky. They're called sundogs. And that's usually seen when there's high atmospheric moisture way up there or ice crystals in the atmosphere, and they call them sundogs. But they'll always appear 22 or so degrees on either side of the sun. And I've seen them many times. And the, rare, the rarest one of all, gentlemen, is to see what's called a moon uh, bow like that or when you see the moon totally encased around in a 22-degree circle, you'll see a big halo around the moon. So atmospheric optics are where to go. 
Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Thomas. We're going to continue with your questions in a moment, and I will give you a clue. Well, Steve will give you a clue on what you can catch in the night sky with the naked eye, what you might need a pair of binoculars for, what might be pretty interesting over the course of the next couple of weeks. Our live sky update straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Lately, I've been, I've been losing sleep. Dreaming about the things that we could be But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard Said no more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars Yeah, we'll be counting stars Any of you like to count stars? Hopefully, you live in an area where the light pollution is minimal. But wherever you live, we are joined by the man who knows a thing or two about how to see a thing or two in the night sky. My guest is Dr. Sky. His Christian name is Steve Cates. You can listen to him whenever you want on the Dr. Sky Experience. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or search Dr. Sky Experience. He's also a regular contributor to uh, the Cats Roundtable on Sunday mornings, I think the most widely listened to Sunday morning syndicated show in America, and we're happy to have him. All right, Steve, uh, October is here. October is traditionally a pretty exciting month for stargazing. What can people take a gander at this month? Well, Frank, really briefly, the new additions that will be up there in a few days of the Dr. Sky Experience are two great interviews with the International Balloon Festival and what's happening there, and also the Balloon Museum to learn about the history of that. But now we go on to October skies. This is very fascinating. The moon, of course, is now waning, meaning it moves on to last quarter on the 6th. We can't wait till the moon goes to new because that's when the annular eclipse happens for a good portion of the United States and other parts of the world on the 14th. The new moon or darker the moon has to happen when the new moon is course, and that's on the 14th. So here's something fascinating. If you're interested in looking at planets, Saturn is an easy object to see within everybody listening right now. Just after sunset, it's about maybe 20 degrees high up in the southeast. It's not super bright, but if you have a telescope, and maybe you've seen it already, folks, you can see this amazing ring system that's pitched about 8.1 degrees. That's exact toward the line of sight. So in a few years, what we happen, what Earth does, it goes through the ring plane. So a lot of people will be disappointed saying, oh, I thought Saturn had rings because we're going to go look edge on, like you'd hold a knife blade, edge on. But the real, the real sky show, in my opinion, for planets, Frank, is Jupiter. This is an easy object to see. So if you're listening right now and you're looking high up into your eastern sky, or maybe in some parts of the listening area, maybe toward the south, high up, maybe about 50, 60 degrees high up, that bright light object is Jupiter. 
Now I'm looking at a calculation little you know thing here that they talk about you know Jupiter's closing in on the Earth. Right now it's 381 million miles and change from the Earth, and it's moving closer to the Earth at about 100 miles every 15 seconds. Now it's not going to hit us, but it'll be best at the end of the month of October, November 1st. It comes to opposition. But if you really want to show your friends and family something, or even just yourself, even try with a pair of binoculars. You'll see the moons that Galileo discovered back on January 7th of 1610. Three or four of them you'll see at a time. I can't find a more fascinating planet, Frank. I could spend hours looking at it because over a few hours you see the moons move and you see some of them throw shadows onto the big ball of the planet and then you see them go into eclipse. So it's like this never-ending cascade it's like billiards running around on the table, but in the most magnificent celestial way. So that's some of the things that I think are more you know, highlighted. Then we have a meteor shower on the morning of the 22nd. It's called the Orionids. You'd see it in the east before dawn. And if you see any of those so-called shooting stars, you're looking at debris from Halley's Comet. So if you missed Halley's in 86, or you weren't around in 1910, and you might not be preparing to be around in 2061, that's up to you you'd be able to see debris from Halley's, one of the most amazing comets called Mankind's Comet because of its 76-year curiosity like that in the older days of what was considered an average lifespan. But now today, thank goodness, we're moving higher into the bigger numbers. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, Dr. Sky. With the lack of atmosphere, aren't there a number yes. of uh, loon rovers up there that should be in pristine condition? Absolutely. And that's interesting because here, another thing, thanks, Jay, for the call and the question. If you take a look at what the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, just go LRO, you know, Google Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, you'll see these images. And I just happen to have a map on my office here that they gave me from the Apollo 17. So you can see the entire rover tracks in that area. And yes, it's in a pristine condition, but there's one thing we also have to be honest with the audience always on is that the radiation of the sun does in many ways kind of change the dynamics of those things. In other words, simply, it can maybe erode some of that metal over course of time, but it's pretty much in a vacuum. It's in a little bit of a harsh sunlight. Every Remember, 14 days we talked about as a lunar day, but the tracks, the lunar rovers, everything they did is up there. And I'm amazed, uh, Jay and Frank, that people could still believe that we never went there because I'm still waiting for this. Wouldn't you gentlemen love this and the listeners? Let's get Elon to send one of these probes that lands right next to the Apollo 11, and let's see 4K or 8K video live. We could do this, and let's just see what's there. Unfortunately, the flag, they say, may have been washed out. It fell over, as Buzz Aldrin said, but... Wouldn't that be great? Just to oh, I'd love it. the fact that we're there. That, I'd that, love to see it. That would be great. Steve, uh, rather than take any other questions here, we've got about a minute left. Can you quickly explain this Psyche asteroid mission launching this week? Well, Psyche is a very interesting asteroid. We're hoping to see the launch by, that is, October the 5th, 10.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time is one of the launch windows. It's going to be launched on a Falcon Heavy rocket. Kudos to Elon and his team. It's going to explore an asteroidal body that's literally, you know, get a load of this, folks. We'll talk about it hopefully next time. Its value could be $10,000 quadrillion. What did I just say? Precious metals, diamonds, gold, all kinds of things. That's a new business opportunity for people to think about. My goodness. That's quite a tease. Steve, uh, thank you so much as always. Let's do this again in two weeks. 
Look forward to it. Thank you. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Catch him on the Cats Roundtable and catch him on the Dr. Sky Experience. Hey, don't look now, but I found someone that doesn't buy any conspiracies. We'll explore it. Your influence counts. Use it.